I'm really nervous when like you're confused by the technical stuff because this means we're doomed. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. I think my levels are super loud. Yeah, I, I think um, I turned you up too much. <laughs> Tegan is here. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, here. Uh, my name is Joram. I'm with Tegan. We didn't introduce ourselves last episode. I just realized that. Yeah, people have to figure it out by themselves by now. Try and guess which one of us is the Tegan, the female. And we, actually, we both have these kind of weird, ambiguous names yeah. where like the gender uh, is not I think immediately obvious. E- eventually, we should just uh, change the names uh, for like a couple but of episodes. This is John and Tina, and we're introducing <laughs> you to Plants in Pipettes. Your generic hosts from Plant Biology. <laughs> um, yeah, welcome. Welcome to another episode. In uh, every episode, we bring you two papers from the world of plant biology and some more things um, later on. So, yeah, I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> and other things will also happen. Yeah, there today. were also other words and are not strictly related to any paper. All right, let's get on with it. Yes, let's start. Tegan, what paper did you bring us? Um, so I brought a paper today about uh, saffron. Saffron. Hmm, I like saffron. Well done. Um, so the paper is um, from this year's new phytolo- phytologist, um, which uh, my my MacBook has autocorrected everything I wrote right scientifically. So it says new physiologist, <laughs> which I just don't think is what I want. No, I definitely want new phytologist. It's from Schmidt et al. Oh dear, it's from Schmidt et al. Um, this year, new phy- phytologist, and the paper is called "Adding Color to a Century-Old Enigma." And then kind of subtitle, multicolor chromosome identification unravels the autotriploid nature of saffron, which is crocus sativus, as a hybrid of wild crocus carthritianus cytotypes. So blah, 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 lots of information yeah. in the title. But the take home message is that they're looking into the um, genome structure of crocus to try and find out what its evolutionary origins, origins are. Yeah. So what do we know about saffron? It's a really important spice. In, it's been used for more than 3,000 years it's by people. It's worth more than gold by weight. Exactly. So um, it's the most expensive spice in the whole world. And as Yoram said, it can be sometimes worth more than gold. Um, it can be up to 30,000 euros per kilogram. Um, and it's highly desirable because it has this both aroma and color, which comes from an apocarotenoid, which is called saffronol because it came, it was first discovered in saffron. Um, yeah. Very obvious And name. it's not really grown anywhere else but in Iran, right? There's a few places where they grow it, but the main exporter... Oh, this is very embarrassing for you. So yeah, Iran is one of the main exporters of saffron. Um, and um, Embarrass me now. Some other countries as well. And um, there it's a very important kind of cash crop because it can be grown, I mean, it has a very high value, but it can also be grown on marginal lands where you actually can't grow other agricultural plants. So it can kind of supplement these like marginal yeah. land communities. Yeah. But the embarrassing fact for you is that it's also grown in Germany, in Dresden. But not like <laughs> not at a, an amount that it's like comparable. Not, not even slightly. Um, so apparently <laughs> back, this is like in the Dresden area, apparently back in the 1570s, they used to grow it. And then there was a centuries long break in the, the growth of this thing. So then it kind of stopped being a thing. And now people are trying to regrow it in this area. And um, they say that the frost makes it more fragrant in, in Germany, which I'm sure like... 
I don't know. I've seen. I recently saw. Uh, I've seen a documentary from Iran where it was about like the food that they eat and everything. It's on mm -hmm. Arte. Um, it's in in German and French. It's called Soutish or uh, Sur les Terroirs, I think. Um, and they showed like how they cook there, and they showed like a small village where they were farming these. And it's it's a backbreaking work. Like mm. these 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 crocus plants, they're like these tiny flowering things that just emerge from the soil, mm -hmm. and you can only pick them by hand. You can't use any machines. Mm -hmm. You have to pick them very early in the morning before the sun comes up, because then they open their flowers, and then the the stigma like uh, that contain the saffron, the the actual spice, it they. Opens. Yeah, they, they, they degrade very quickly. So they have to, like, in the middle of the night when it's really cold, they have to go out there, pick them by hand, and then, like, bring them all home and then, like, open by hand each of these flowers and then take out these, these uh, stigma. It's, like, crazy amount of work. So it's absolutely justified that it's so expensive. Yeah, and apparently, like, a, a skilled worker, so somebody who's, like, the expert at getting this can get about 60 to 80 grams per day. And then they have to pick... 150 to 2,000 uh, 200,000 flowers to get a kilogram of saffron and this is in contrast to the fact that 200 tons of saffron are produced a year so it's just like such a huge amount of man labor going into getting this yeah. this one thing yeah. yeah and as Joram mentioned it comes just from the stigma of this one species which happens to be crocus sativus which is what I'm talking about today um some other kind of fun facts about it um It's obviously used as a spice, but also as a dye. So it has this really vibrant, like yellowy orange color, but it's also been used like in medicine, like um, for a long time. So it's supposed to help with rheumatism apparently. And also alcohol addiction was one of the things that like saffron was supposed <laughs> to like, I'm not sure if it was preventing it or curing it, but I saw this somewhat online. Yeah, I, I heard it has like these anti-inflammatory properties. Yeah, so it's also supposed to be used as a painkiller. We don't know how scientific this is. We have, I haven't looked into the, the actual snake oiliness of this, but <laughs> it's just like some of the, the things that it has been used for and maybe it's still used for. And the other one is for treating a lady's malaise. Um, <laughs> Which is delightful. Which is what? Underpaid work? <laughs> yeah. Like, generally being oppressed. Like, <laughs> the next time I'm feeling a bit of malaise, you can make me some sort of saffron. I make like. you like a saffron rice dish. And yeah. <laughs> and the final thing is that in, apparently in Greek mythology, in some versions, Zeus, the king of the gods, slept on a bed of saffron, which uh, I think is, is um, very opulent. Yeah. Okay, but to actual saffron and, and what it is from like a biological or from a sciencey point of view, um, it's Crocus sativus, which is this species, which is a little bit of a genetic mystery. So saffron has like these eight chromosomes, but they're present in triploid. So we'll get to that, but it's got eight chromosomes, which are 3.45 gigabase pairs, which mm -hmm. is fairly big um, in Comparison Arabidopsis is like 0.17 gigabase, but of course Arabidopsis has a very small genome. But yeah, the, the, the real problem is that these chromosomes are present in triploids. So we know that most species have like haploid for the gametes and diploid is kind of the, the standard state. So that's two copies of each chromosome, like traditionally one from your mum and one from your dad for humans and for most yeah. sexually reproducing species. Um, but polyploidy is actually quite a common um property of many crop species that we have and this is polyploidy is where you have kind of extra numbers of these yeah. copies of uh, chromosomes. But most of the time it's like even numbers right? Which is exactly the problem so um, polyploidy usually involves going up in lots of two at least and this is basically because when you have this division um, mitosis or even meiosis when you have separation of the chromosomes you need sets of two that they can separate to um, 
each side of the cell. So one example is like wheat is hexaploid. That means it's six, but then you have three and three. So six is divisible by two. That's yeah. the most important thing. It doesn't have to be like two or four. It has to be just divisible by, yeah. by two in the end. And yeah, you might've noticed that triploid means three. Three is not divisible by two, which means that there's mostly problems in meiosis. So in, in making these gametes, and that means it's sterile. So basically um, all crocus sativas are male sterile, which means they have to be propagated from corms. Yeah, they are. Yeah, you don't have the classic way of pollen uh, fertilizing an egg cell and then making seeds, and from the seeds you can grow new plants. But you pretty much have like clonal um, uh, a form of asexual reproduction. Reproduction, yeah. So you take and combs are these um, like they have these bulbs right under under underground, and then this is a part of this bulb right that you sort of is it sort of just falling up like can you just take it off like with a garlic clove or do you have to like cut it off and then it re regenerates into a new plant yeah so technically i mean it's, it's like a bulb but there are these kind of different forms of like there's bulbs there's tubers there's rhizomes there's corms and they're all slightly different subcategories but they're all under this big thing called geophytes which is like geo is just like the earth so stuff that lives in the earth um and yeah corms are a bit different from bulbs in that bulbs have like layers um, like an onion and usually a papery outer, again, like an onion. So this is things like tulips and hyacinths, daffodils. You have this papery <coughs> outside, then layers of, of the bulb. Corms are more like a solid mass, very starchy, like as a storage thing. And this is like cyclamen or as a snake lily, these different species. Um, there's also tubers, like... Potatoes. Potatoes, represent. Um, also uh, <laughs> dahlias. Um, and this is a bit different. So tubers and rhizomes, which are the other two, they're a bit different from corms and bulbs because bulbs and corms are kind of one entirety and they need to like, the corm can bud, but you can't just like cut a segment off the, the corm and make a whole new plant. It has to make this little daughter corms, mm -hmm. little like budding um, cell. Whereas tubers and also rhizomes and rhizomes are kind of like fat swollen stems, which like run horizontal instead of vertical. These guys, you can just cut bits of them and you can get a whole new plant for that. So this, you know, with potatoes, like if you- They, they sprout as soon as they get a little bit of light and um, some time. They sprout even from like just cut off pieces or yeah. broken so tubers. So you have these, yeah, like the eyes. And if you have a little bit of potato and you put it on some earth, it'll make yeah. a whole new potato. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's basically the thing that um, saffron <coughs> is never sexually reproducing. It's always being doing this clonal propagation from the corms where you take these daughter cells. Um, and one of the big problems of that is that we can't really genetically improve saffron in any way. Um, and also all of the saffron we have has absolutely no genetic diversity. So yeah, yeah this means that we can't, not only can we not improve it, we cannot like breed more desirable traits yeah, in like yeah. these natural ways. We can't make more variations like we did with all our, or many other crops. It's absolutely inaccessible. Like uh, this crocus is inaccessible to it. Yeah. And I mean, it also can be a problem. So if there's things like pests, um, which our clones are all susceptible to this can really like devastate the entire population at one time so it also can be like dangerous for the industry as a whole yeah yeah so people have been trying to kind of work out what the wild ancestor the actual diploid um, ancestor was that made this screwed up triploid sterile thing because hopefully we can either somehow like make a new crocus sativas from from the old diploid or at least like use some of that information to kind of add genes and like cross things in in a more artificial way to 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 work it out um yeah so people have been looking to this for many years about what could be the the progenitors so the mother and father of 
the saffron and now I'm going to get some Latin names. So Crocus carthritianus is the wild species, which has been most commonly linked to be the likely mother and father of our beautiful Crocus sativus. Um, it, it looks very similar. Um, and there are several studies which have kind of said, hey, this is probably the one. Yeah. And the idea is that this guy basically had um, a problem when it was mating. So instead of getting normal pollination, one of the two gametes forgot to reduce to haploid. So gametes, usually you have meiosis where you go from the 2N or the diploid state to N, the haploid state, and then the two haploids meet to make another diploid. And the idea is that probably one of them forgot to make itself into a haploid, probably the pollen. Usually it's like the male's fault in these kind of things. And I'm not just saying that from a feminist point of view, but <laughs> like scientifically it's usually the fault of the pollen because pollen are less good at this stuff. Um, yeah. And then this made this autotriploid. Um, so it's just itself self-mating but other people have said that it might be different um multiple parents so there could be like species x and species y coming together and and making this triploid again with with different species um in the end very very recently i think in 2018 or even at the start of this year there was a study with um snip analysis so this is basically looking at um single nucleotide polymorphisms so changes at single base pairs across genes throughout all of the the genome um and they often don't cause a direct mutation. Um, I mean, they might be, but they're mostly used for like patterns, right? You you look at the SNP pattern of a plant and a, a, another organism, another plant, and if the SNP patterns are very similar, then they're closely related. If they're very different, then they're not as closely related. And with that, you can have some like conclusions on like the evolutionary history or some other like sort of intergenerational pa uh, patterns. Yeah, so this exactly that. This study had a look at the the SNPs of the the Carthritianus, this potential mother and father of Crocus sativus, our saffron, and they were pretty conclusive that it's probably mostly Carthritianus. But anyway, um, this paper was looking at it in a slightly different way. So they were again trying to track um, this this parental relationship, but they were doing it by comparing the chromosomal landscape. So actually looking at the physical structures of the chromosomes. Mm -hmm. So karyotyping, this is called. Um, to see where the different chromosomes um, possibly come from and how similar they are. So, for example, this um, sativus has the eight chromosomes, but three copies of each. And, for example, seeing how similar each of those three copies are to each other. Are they all exactly the same or is one of them different? This kind of analysis. So they want to better understand the structure of the, the saffron itself, but also better understand its relationship to other wild um, species. So in this paper, they looked at Crocus tomasi. This is going to be really awkward now, guys. Oreocreticus, Asomaniae, Hadriaticus. I think I got that one right. Palisi and Cancellatus. So they, they looked at like a few different um, types of Crocus as well as this um, Carthritianus. And they looked at several different types of the Carthritianus as well. So even within species, there are different um cultivars, accessions or ecotypes are kind of slightly different variations depending on the evolutionary history of this, like within the species. And they also um, looked at the different karyotypes of this. Um, and the way they looked at the chromosomes is by using a technique called fluorescence in situ hybridization, which comes down very nicely to the word 
uh, in situ means in in the plant cell uh, fluorescence is the signal molecule when like you shine some light on it and it emits another light you can detect it and what was it? hybridization yeah so that it, it forms hybrids and binds to things so it's probably like a fluorescent dye that binds to the dna at specific places and then you can detect it not bad it's fluorescent probes um and these probes are actually <laughs> attached to bits of dna and then those dna's have homology to parts of the chromosomes and they cling to those parts and then make those bits glow um Actually, what I was looking for you to say is that fluorescence in situ hybridization is shortened to the word fish, which uh, yeah. <laughs> I think is really cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so as you're really nicely already um, guessed or perhaps knew because he's so wise. Um, <laughs> so wise. This, yeah, this idea uses these, these short DNA codes. Um, which have a fluorescence thing basically tagged on the end of them and the DNA goes and finds homology on the chromosomes, touches it and then basically makes that part of the chromosome glow. So you can basically visualize different bits of the chromosome and it makes like stripes across the chromosomes, like these these glowing bands across the uh, chromosome depending on where your DNA hits the chromosome. Um, and to do this, of course, you need the DNA in the condensed form. So when we think of DNA, we have this beautiful idea of like these chromosomes, these kind of like X-like structures, but this is not how DNA is always present. This is what happens- Only at very specific time points, right? In, in, in the cell cycle, whenever the uh, mitosis or meiosis happens, so when the cells divide, then all of the DNA is sort of like curled up and gathered together, it's sort of uh, lying around in like this um, uncoiled form, so it's accessible for all the enzymes, for all the repli uh, for all the um, DNA polymerases and all uh, or RNA polymerases. <clears throat> so when it's used, then it's uh, uncoiled. But for for um, cell division, you need it in this like structured, coiled up form, and only then you can actually see them as chromosomes. Yeah. So yeah, basically in the metaphase of um, mitosis, these guys come together, condense. Yeah, so actually the major work of this um, paper was them defining these um, cytogenic landmark sequences. So basically these strips of DNA that they could use to attach a fluorescent dye to, a fluorescent probe to, sorry, to then like make certain parts of their chromosomes gl um, glow. And this is actually a lot of work. It's, it's not trivial um, what's done, but just to really summarize it quickly, they did a kind of low complexity genome sequencing of their species of interest, so the saffron, to basically see what DNA was there. Um, and then they use this program, which is called Repeat Explorer. And this is basically just looking for repetitive elements in DNA. So although we like to think that all our genes are beautiful and unique, actually our DNA is filled with tons of bits, which are just like small sequences, which repeat over and over again. And the idea is that you should try and target one of these repetitive elements because then with a single like DNA attached to a fluorescent probe, you hit multiple spots across the genome and hopefully a multiple chromosomes. So you basically get more bang for your buck. You have this one sequence mm -hmm. and it will hit like 30 or 40 repetitive um, sequences, for example. So they defined these, um, they found uh, six of these um, sequences. So they made these kind of things which are called satellite probes from these six sequences, which should hit multiple parts of the genome. And um, together they, they predicted that these six would already hit 2.3% of the genome or something like that. So it's quite a lot of hit from just having six different probes. They did a lot of work in checking that these um, would actually like hit the marks they were supposed to. So they did some southerns, um, things like this. But basically they first defined um, these probes and then they got their material ready. So they took the ro roots of the different um, crocus species 
and they did special chemical fixation to basically synchronize the cells and get them all fixed in this um, metaphase of this part of mitosis where all of the chromosomes are condensed and then they could undertake the the fish mm -hmm. the the hybridization did they add all the probes at the same time with different dyes or yeah so basically um they have six different probes with some different dyes on top of that they had um an extra one which was aimed at certain rRNA regions so um so ribosomal RNA exactly so that gives them a seventh basically satellite and in total these make 92 signals across all of the chromosomes mm -hmm. so this is like all seven things together um just uh to quickly go through it none of their probes hit every single chromosome so out of these eight um, which is which is usually the case because these repetitive um, elements are not necessarily evenly spread over all the chromosomes. But by making different combinations, you have like kind of this rainbow map that forms and you can say, okay, like chromosome one, his upper arm has a bit of blue, which is probe number one. And in the middle, it's got some yellow. And then over here, it's got some like pink and you can add different colors, which are representing these different probes. And by different combinations, you can then find out what the minimal map is you need to Rec uh, recognize each individual chromosome so you need mm -hmm. that everybody has a unique patterning of these colors and like the location of the colors in order to immediately <coughs> say hey that's chromosome number 5.1 like this is yeah. this one yeah um and you also need to kind of choose you also kind of need to choose which are the best satellites because some of them obviously bind less well than you would predict Maybe um, the fluorophores don't work as well, so you have like less good signal than you work. So they did a lot of work kind of optimizing to see which of the, yeah. the different satellites. And yeah, as you said, they they didn't use all of them in the, in the end. Um, the the last two, number five and six, they actually were aimed uh, to hit less of the, the genome. So I think it's only 0.03, the two of them together. So in the end, they could exclude those two um, and just using f uh, four satellites plus their rRNA, they could unequivocally identify each of these different chromosomes that they could see in the crocus um, mm -hmm. sativa. So this is the eight chromosome types and three of each of these kind of types of chromosomes. And each chromosome had now a unique pattern? Yeah, each, cr each chromosome is now recognizable based on this pattern of um, basically colors, so glow. So we'll put a link, um, I'm showing Yoram now kind of the, what you end up yeah. with, so you can make different combinations of these um, fluorescent colorings, yeah, but we'll put a link like up a, on the podcast. A bunch of like gray worms, which are the chromosomes, and they have, you know, these, this, this candy, these like uh, sugar worms that have uh, like two different colors. Yeah. Uh, they are in the vending machine at work. And these look <laughs> a little bit like it. They have like different like colored bits of them and um yeah actually i want to have some of these <laughs> gummy worms now and i don't have Next any week. no um yeah but you should look at the paper um and it's it's quite interesting to see i'm always fascinated when you see especially with like these chromosomes when you see these molecular structures that we always just discuss in this sort of theoretical view um and then you see them like manifested as something observable with the microscope um, with all the genetic information on them. It's quite cool. Yeah, and then there's other uh, figures where um, then they sorted them in these karyograms, which is also, I, I know that it used to be a standard method in, in genetic uh, or in molecular biology, where you like take them all, like from these images, you take them all apart and, and pair them up and then um, put them next to each other to f see the similarities or dissimilarities. And they did that here as well. 
um, yeah, and you, every chromosome has like a different colored spot attached to it and a different like size and shape. Different, col- yeah, like collection of colors in the end. Yeah, yeah, it's quite cool. So using this um, fish technique, they could then define first describe what these eight different triplets of Crocus sativa, so our normal saffron, look like. Um, and what they found is that five of the eight, they basically had very similar um, for all three different copies of the chromosome. Um, generally, two of them were identical, and the third one looked quite similar, but was a little bit different. So that was five of them. Two more of them, so now we're up to seven in total, were completely identical, all three copies. And one of them was kind of bizarre. It had like three different chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just the, the general pattern. And what this suggests is... Um, given that the majority of them two were similar and and one is different these two probably came from exactly the same parent and the other one came from a different parent um but that's actually not different parent species it's actually one species so in the end they found that all of these looked like Carthritianus. so they looked mm-hmm. like this this potential um progenitor they didn't look like other of the species of the crocuses um they found but Carthritianus itself has different cytotypes. So it's mm. been sitting in the field and evolving sexually for millennia while Crocus has basically been, like Sativa, sorry, has basically been frozen in time because it's only um, propagating clonally. And over this time, there's been some changes in the structure um, of the chromosome, some rearrangements, um, some changes in size and stuff like this. So... As I said, they looked at different variations of this Carthritianus, different accessions or different like cultivars of um, this species. And they found that there was a little bit of variation even within that species. There was like, they had five different like um, types and a couple of them were very, very similar um, to the Sativus and some of them were less similar, but even the less similar ones were still much closer than the other different mm-hmm. species they looked at. Yeah. Um, so... 17 out of the 24 chromosomes in sativas could be like very directly linked in like their shape, the structure and the banding of this fish to um, the Carthritianus. So this is like quite nice idea that it's definitely Carthritianus that all of the chromosomes are coming from. And on the other hand, as I said, the other species they looked at, completely different. Are these um, species sequenced? Is like the, the, the saffron crocus, is that already like... Yeah, so the saffron is, and they also did this like low um, level, uh, low complexity sequencing in this paper. The Carthritianus, I'm not sure. I think it must have been in the SNP study, actually. They must have done um, sequencing for SNP, but I'm not sure about these other okay. um, five or six. That they but it's at. not like um, assembled to the quality that you could compare these two sequences. Um, because like this is a lot of, of work to mm. sort of have these visual structures. And in my mind, I would I, I would think if you just... Um, yeah, align like do full full uh, whole genome sequencing, and then just align these two sequences. Then you can already see similarities or dissimilarities in the overall structure. But it requires a high quality whole genome that has been assembled. Um, and, and that's true. But actually, one of the points they made in the paper is that this is not a less um, detailed way of looking. At it. It's a complementary method because mm-hmm. when you do sequencing, you can see what genes there are but it's it's kind of difficult to build up a full genome structure like as you know like yeah. usually like a genome actually is made up of tons of contigs which are kind of like broken up sections of the genome yeah that's true yeah. and they said especially given that this Carthritianus this ancestor 
even within the species, there was like a lot of rearrangements of the chromosome. It was like highly prone to this mixing and matching. You wouldn't necessarily see that in sequencing because all the sequences might be still there, but they've all moved around. So this way they could not only say that there's like very close genetic link to the Carthritianus based on like everything being there, but they could also say, hey, out of these Carthritianus, this certain subspecies or yeah. cultivar, it's got the most similar chromosome structure. So it's more likely to be something similar to the direct parent. I see. Yeah. So it's it's kind of even, it's not better, but it's it's complementary. It's not like worse, definitely, um, as yeah. a method. Yeah. So they then produced at the very end of the paper, a model where they basically showed two different Carthritianus cytotypes. So these two kind of like cultivar successions of um, this Carthritianus come together. Um, one of them has a regular female gamete. The other one has an unreduced male. So basically the pollen has forgotten to make the haploid because this is, as I said, more common in males. Um, and then you get this offspring, which was sterile because it was triploid. It had the wrong number of chromosomes. And again, um, based on doing this chromosome studies, they could see what you wouldn't see so easily by RNA-seq, um, or it would be more difficult to, to notice um, sorry, not RNA-seq, by right, um, whole genome sequencing. That's the one. Um, was that there was these two very identical ones in most cases and the third, which looks a little bit different. So this also gives this idea that two of them are from the one cytotype and the one is from a separate cytotype of mm -hmm. the same Carthritiana species. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so then you have this, this sterile triploid offspring and they say, well, because it obviously had something better which was selected for. So people obviously saw immediately that it had like more aroma or something and therefore we've been selecting it. People have been like producing it by these corms asexually, but it was like locked in time. Um, the other thing is that they think that this is a very rare thing to happen that you have these um, kind of screw ups which result yeah. in these triploid species. And usually triploid is basically an evolutionary dead end because unless people are manually keeping you alive, you die out, you can't make young. So the, the way around it is that species have to like then duplicate that triploid and become hexaploid, which is the idea with wheat that you have a hexaploid kind of event. Um, but anyway, um, so this, this crocus sativus being like evolving was most likely a single event because all the crocus we have are kind of sterile. They've been selected for and they all look exactly the same. But they said that from this work, we can now kind of select the correct cytotypes, so these um, subspecies of the Carthritianos, and use them to try like remaking mm -hmm. Crocus sativus for ourselves. And then we yeah. can also introduce different variations from the different cytotypes and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Cool. cool. It's a nice paper. Yeah. And also, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard in general about this fish method, but it was not, I've never seen it. Um, used and to such an extent it was like all the like across several species having these patterns and f uh, using that to figure out this like whole genome structure um, yeah it's really cool I definitely have the idea of it as being like less commonly used than previously and I don't know if that's just my own bias um, from the science I do but I haven't seen much about it so it was really cool to see it and yeah I mean guys we'll put we'll put the um, link to some of the images on the show notes but it's it's just really beautiful as well it's very artistic when you have these little chromosomes growing yeah. like yeah. like candy worms it's much more fun than like many of the protein studies or stuff that I usually read where you just have the same type of image and um, yeah it's not Lists colorful and it's not like very exciting and it's also I mean like it's visually very convincing as well when you see like um, yeah. 
the the pictures of the Carthritianos and then you see the pictures of, of the crocus side by side and you can say hey yeah I can see that how that one is very similar to that one like that that like visually makes sense to me as well which yeah. it's harder than matching um, DNA sequences in our head right yeah, yeah. cool yeah, and in general, like saffron is just a very cool plant um, to study. I mean, I, th- I think I've heard something that people are also looking into the, um, like recreating these, these pathways to make these aromatic compounds uh, in in other ways because it's saffronal so, because it's so hard. But I think uh, to to um, farm them, but I think it's it's also really difficult. Like it's not it's not straightforward to to um, yeah produce saffronal. I guess like the. When something is so specifically produced in like such a small plate, like it's only produced in these stigmas, right? It also tells tells me that, I mean, it doesn't tell me, but it makes me think that it's it's a lot of effort for the plant to make it, or you know, there's there's some there's some reason it's being kept in that one location, which might yeah. mean it's like I mean, maybe it's poisonous to the plant, or maybe like these other things where yeah. it's a lot of energy, so yeah, then it's harder for us to recreate it as well, perhaps. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, thank you for that paper. I'm pouring tea. Um, let's move to to my paper which is a little bit of a shorter story Um, my paper is called the role of plastidic trigger factor serving protein biogenesis in green algae and land land plants Um, it's by a number of authors today I'm not going to read all of them it's just the first author is Marina Rohr and the last author is Felix Wilmund it's from plant physiology also from 2019 Um, yeah and it deals with the thing um, in the plastic, this plastidic trigger factor. Um, But I want to go even a little bit broader in the introduction to this thing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about protein structure in general, and maybe you can help me with that. So um, the proteins have primary, secondary, tertiary, and sometimes quaternary structures. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you know which one is which? Oh, I can probably make it. <laughs> so primary structure. Primary is just the amino acids, the order that yeah, they're in to make the, the protein. Sequence. The secondary <clears throat> is basic folding into like alpha helices or beta sheets. The tertiary is when they form into this like globular of the whole protein. And I think the quaternary is um, when they make different protein subunits coming together to make like a protein. Yeah, like protein complexes. Yeah, like rubisco with the large and the small. Yeah, rubisco in plants. The classic example in humans is heme. Um, it, mm-hmm. it has like four identical proteins that form this uh, shape that with a uh, iron um, iron in the middle that is sort of uh, as that's the the red color in blood. Um, so yeah, these are the the four structures, um, and these structures, especially the the tertiary um, structures, so the overall structure of the protein. Um, these are sometimes formed spontaneously if you just make the protein and let it sit in in a buffered environment. But most of the time, there are helpers to fold them. And mm. I think we talked about them in the previous episode a little bit. Um, these are the chaperones. I think we talked about heat shock proteins at one point, which are often chaperones. Yeah, chaperones. Um, that is also my first example for, for these chaperones when they are important. It's heat shock or in general stress. So when there's something that makes it uh, the proteins potentially lose their structure and therefore their function, then you have heat shock proteins um, and others that sort of uh, exist as a scaffolding to keep them together, to make sure that they don't uh, disintegrate and and lose their structure and lose their function. Um, But there's also other points when chaperones, uh, like in time when chaperones are important. Um, 
One of them is uh, import into different organelles. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have the protein is made in the nucleus and then it has to be transported through the cell to the membrane of the organelle, for example, the chloroplast, and then it has to transport it across these membranes. And then um, this often uh, doesn't work when the protein's already folded. So it has to defold and then as a long um, sort of uh, snake-like structure has to go through a pore into the chloroplast and then it has to be refolded. Um, to be functional. Um, and again, there, there are chaperones that help there. And then finally, which is something that I personally even never really thought about, but it's really um, crucial, is directly after biogenesis. So um, mm -hmm. just to to recap how protein biogenesis uh, works, you have the, the RNA that, that uh, is read then by ribosomes, and then um, amino acid, uh, after amino acid, um, a, na a nascent protein chain is formed. It's sort of ejected from the ribosome at a specific site. And as you imagine, like if these these amino acids, they have all sorts of different residues that make up their, their properties, they can spontaneously fold and form some weird aggregates mm -hmm. that might not ever be soluble again. So there are actually chaperones that immediately attach when this protein chain uh, um, emerges from the ribosome. They immediately attach and sort of to make, make sure, sure it goes into the right shape, not some other random shape. That or it just wants pre to be in. prevent it from having any shape at all until mm -hmm. it's fully um, it's expressed. Mm -hmm. um, so this is very well studied in E. coli. There's a so-called trigger factor protein, the TF protein. This um, hangs around at the ribosome, binds to the ribosome, and when as soon as there's some amino acids chains coming out... It triggers. Uh, it immediately is triggered or triggers like attachment to them and makes sure that um, the protein uh, does not fold until um, it's fully made and then um, they can release or help the folding to make functional protein. Um, and in green algae and higher plants these processes are much less understood. So mm -hmm. in E. coli, we have fairly good understanding about the entire process and also yeah, other chaperones. Everything is better understood in E. coli. Yeah, it's it's just that much more simple. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, in this paper that I want to present, um, they, they did some preliminary work in a previous paper from last year, um, and they identified a protein that is a homologue to this TF from E. coli. Um, it's called TIC1. Um, I think it's called trigger factor in green uh, green organisms one. Um, and the fun thing that I pulled up from here is that it's uh, called, it has a crouching uh, crouching dragon structure with three domains. In Do you see a crouching dragon in that? I see kind of like, oh, I see a crouching dragon, <laughs> but it's peeing. It's got something weird coming. <laughs> yeah. Or I could see like one of those Pez dispensers where it's got like kind of bubble on the the, the top. Like this could be like the, the opening. Okay, we're going to yeah. put it in the show notes. You can tell us what you think it looks like. Yeah. And I even put it on the side here to, to see. But to me, it no, no, no. It's crouching like upright. This is its legs, I think. So it's like. No, I mean, it says head, arms, no, look, and I'm tail. Gonna, it's got like, like this, but it's like, like this. <laughs> Like kind of squatting Tegan, down a bit. Tegan is uh, doing protein imitating. structures now. Yeah. Um, what we'll do is we'll put side by side a picture of me <laughs> being the protein and a picture of the protein and just like, who does it better? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't really see this um, crouching uh, dragon there. I rather see a fox or You're something. You're a black's imagination. That's yeah, his problem. Okay. But yeah, so it's this crouching dragon protein um, that is has it, some structural similarities to this TF. Don't, don't tigers crouch and dragons hide? Traditionally. Okay, nothing. Sorry, carry Isn't, on. I, I thought it was even like a um, uh, like a martial arts movie with a similar title to Crouching Dragon. Yeah, crouching, crouching Tiger, tiger. Hidden Dragon. Ah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. Carry on. I took this from the paper, so they don't get their pop cultural references right. They should call it the crouching, crouching tiger, tiger protein. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so they identified that before and um, resolved the structure with different methods, um, but they still did not know what it does and how it works. And this is what this paper is then about. Um, so a little bit about like the take one. It's a chloroplast protein. Um, so it localizes to the chlor to chloroplast, which has a very similar environment to prokaryotes like E. coli. Mm -hmm. um, that's the evolutionary link here. Um, and the interesting thing about it is when they knocked it out in Arabidopsis and Chlamydomonas reinhardi, so green algae, um, they couldn't see any immediate phenotype. And they did all kinds of tests and looked at different conditions. Heat shock. And yeah, they did, they did heat shocks. They uh, did other stresses. Um, and overall, they could not really see an effect mm -hmm. uh, in, in the knockout, um, which immediately... Like in, in E. coli, they had some like um, growth, growth defects, defects yeah. when they would not have it. They would see a lot of uh, unfolded proteins accumulate. Mm -hmm. So uh, when they then did the total protein extraction in E. coli, they could see like a lot of insoluble proteins so that it would immediately clump up and sort of become insoluble and mess up the cell. It's like one of the most disappointing things is like a plant scientist when you like get a knockout mutant, you've got your gene of interest and you're like, yeah, I'm going to like knock this protein. And it's going to be, yeah. it's going to be super stuffed up. And then it, it just looks like the wild type and you're like, yeah. And especially ah, under different conditions. <laughs> but what they figured out eventually is that the energy demand seemed to be increased. So in the Chlamydomonas, in, in cell culture, uh, would uh, require or would sort of quicker deplete all the acetate in the culture. Mm -hmm. um, so the carbon source that it uses to grow, it would very quickly eat everything that it can there. Um, Did they grow it on minimal media? Um, yeah, the, then they, they uh, grew them in minimal media and then they could see more of an effect. Mm -hmm. And also in Arabidopsis, they could see that uh, Arabidopsis uh, um, during the day accumulates much more starch and then uh, eats it all up during the night. So overall, it would still do fine, mm -hmm. but it just the amplitude of the starch buildup and starch degradation was much higher. So overall, it just requires more energy to survive, mm -hmm. but it was able to produce that energy. It was just like probably under specific stress conditions, this would okay. break down, mm -hmm. but in the conditions that they tested, they still look green and fine and everything. It was just like they made much more starch during the day and like burn through all of it during the night. Mm. And did they grow the Arabidopsis also like under low light conditions or like limiting? For um, I think they did a little bit, but they didn't go too far in it. Like the what I put here first is actually one of the last steps they did in their paper is to actually produce a knockout and look at it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, what the main work that they did here. So after they they figure out like okay the the the, the knockouts they don't seem to be. Um, as dramatic as in E. coli, they, they looked at um, whether or not they could complement uh, E. coli knockouts that have no trigger factor, no TF, mm -hmm. with the TIG1 from um, algae and plants. And um, it didn't really work. So <laughs> <laughs> the, um, they found that they must have different functions because the, the, um, the TF knockout could not be really complemented by this. To uh, some extent it could, but not really. Um, they also studied the sedimentation of ribosomal particles with um, TIG1, which mm -hmm. means that you put on an ultra centrifuge, you just centrifuge your cell lyse it, and all the ribosomes, they go into a specific band and then you can look what's attached to them. And while in E. coli, this trigger factor is attached to the ribosome, um, only a small fraction of TIG1 is attached to the ribosome. So also that seems to work differently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and the conclusions that they did from that is that 
the trigger factor and take one have different functions. Um, they this is not conserved uh, um, across this evolutionary timeline. Um, the tick one does not bind to ribosomes as well, so it has other functions, um, and they uh, suggest that it might not only um, be necessary as a chaperone in biogenesis, but also maybe at uh, during the import into the organelle. So that's mm -hmm. why you don't see it associated with the ribosomes because they sort of hang around the import pores where the proteins come in and then help folding these proteins. Um, and the higher energy turnover is um, they, they hypothesize that this is uh, due to a required demand for this protein homeostasis in the plastid, right? Mm -hmm. In the plastid, you have a lot of proteases. They constantly make sure that anything that's not necessary or that's misfolded or damaged gets immediately degraded. Um, and so you have this, this, this rapid protein turnover. And many of these proteases require energy to work. So the idea here is that you have more misfolding of proteins, but it, there's immediately a system that takes care of it. Mm -hmm. So when they come out of the ribosomes or through the import and they curl up and are misfolded, it's immediately recognized by some protease, chopped down so it can't mm -hmm. do any damage. And this is just very energy demanding. So they need to do in the future some experiments where they look at like the turnover rate of the proteins in the plastid. Yeah, turnover rate and maybe also like protease activity assays or something mm -hmm. like that where it can can see that. Um, but yeah, overall, that was the the conclusion that these have like a different different function and it needs it requires further study to fully understand where exactly they work. But they can ex uh, exclude now that it just does the same as in E. coli, although it's structurally very similar and has similar motives. But it's very cool. It's quite far away from plants, yeah. even though you know you've got yeah. the prokaryotic would, similarities with the chloroplast. It would be more interesting to see the similarities between like a cyanobacterial yeah. uh, trigger factor and this tick one. But they they looked at the one in E. coli because that's the most uh, sure. It's it's the that's best where study. The, the information comes from. Yeah, and just to like this for this very short story, like why did I care for this? Um, is I found it interesting because we often just look at like big things. We look at the ribosomes, DNA polymerases, like bigger metabolic pathways. Yeah. And um, we tend to forget that there's like um, many, many very small parts that are like scaffoldings, that are protective er er things like assembly factors in, in, in protein complexes and things that have just like a small function to make sure that it doesn't fall apart until it's fully functional. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I found it quite cool um, to, to have this look at this thing that you have like these little proteins, these little dragons hanging out around the ribosomes. And as soon as there's a protein chain, like these dragons, crouch, crouching dragons, <laughs> jump on it and make sure it doesn't fold up yeah, do until they, it's they, ready. Like change their, um, sorry, do they change their position? Like they become uncrouched and like, <laughs> like really pounce like, like a Pounce on it, and it's just like bite into the neck of the, uh, the amino acid chain to make Ooh. sure it doesn't move, and then they let go. And we have this problem of like personifying, anthropomorphizing <laughs> <laughs> all of the proteins. Yeah, so just the take-home message of it is just like little dragons in all plant cells. Plant cells are all about dragons. Yeah, yeah, that's the paper. Alrighty, I think we have a new segment happening now, which yeah. is dun 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 favorite plant yeah so this week it's my turn to do my favorite plant and i've gone full australian so, so orange yeah orange is the new black is the new green i guess for the color i'm sorry is the new color um today i'm talking about nutsia um which is a west australian plant species and we refer to it normally as the christmas tree or the australian christmas tree and can you guess why that is uh jesus brought it 
Yeah, it looks nothing like a Christmas tree. So it doesn't have this <laughs> pine structure. Yeah, it doesn't look like a pine. It is that green. It looks more like something you would find like on maybe African savanna. It's got this kind of like weird structure, but I'm most importantly, it has bright, bright, bright orange flowers. Um, and the reason it's called a Christmas tree is because it flowers around Christmas. So yeah, which is summer in Australia. Yay. Um, yeah, and basically in the summer of Australia, you can see these just like bright orange spots throughout the landscape, and it's a super amazing plant. Um, the species name is Floribunda, so it's Nutsia floribunda, um, and as I said, it's found in Western Australia. And I know it from my childhood because my mum tried to grow this a few times, <laughs> and every time she would buy little seedlings and they would die. Okay. And one of the reasons it's hard to grow is because it's a hemiparasitic tree. So... It is a hemiparasite, which means that it takes some of its energy not from its own photosynthesis, but mm. it steals it from other species. Um, and when you get this like Nutsia seedling from um, the nursery, the plant nursery, you tend to get it with something else already in the pot that it can like steal the carbon of. So you have to be kind of careful, especially in these okay. early days. When so it's you actually like, have to like grow two plants. Exactly. And while it is establishing, it's a little bit fragile because it's really relying on this extra carbon. You've got a tiny pot with like two plants. The other guy's not doing so well. So I think it's it's a bit of a fragile ecosystem um, to grow yeah. this thing. So a little bit mean, if you imagine like being the plant, it's just there to, <laughs> so another part, plant like can leech on Like the donor plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Yep, so they're called the Christmas plants um, or the Christmas tree because they make these beautiful bright flowers during Christmas. They're also known um, locally by the Aboriginal people, so it's the Noongar people in that region, as Mudya, and this species actually has some significance um, for the Aboriginal people um, in like traditional um, context. Um, but I was kind of looking at it because of this this parasitic relationship. Um, in For a recent blog post, I was looking at these parasitic orchids and um, what they're doing. And I liked this guy because it's quite different from those orchids. So the, the mechanism of the orchid is to find quite a specific fungi species um, and start stealing some carbon off that, for example, maybe some other things, some nitrogen, phosphate, water from that. Um, and then form quite a specific and dedicated like one-to-one -one relationship with this fungi. So the plant, in order to become like fully parasitic, it actually adapts itself to that fungi to better trick that fungi into giving it what it needs. And this guy I like because it's really a generalist. So it basically just doesn't have a specific host. It just steals from whatever it can find nearby. Um, and it also doesn't just like attach to one species it kind of again attaches to anything that's growing in 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 the um in its vicinity so it's a root hemiparasite which basically means it attaches its roots to other roots um okay. to steal water and nutrients from the hosts um and it just sends them out in all directions um it says that the hostoria which are these um little like tendrils coming from the roots of the nutsia have even been found attached to like underground power cables where it's just like trying for everything yeah. and like this looks like a root let's just like try and steal stuff from that um <laughs> and yeah just as a final thing uh, power and internet and everything it's just like <laughs> the most connected plant in the world exactly um and it says that, like it can have hosts as wide as i mean it, it's a natural australian endemic plant so like its native hosts would be australian plants but it can also steal from roses geranium grass grapevines oranges beans and carrots so i just thought that was super cool that it's this really generalist parasite yeah. that can just like go to town on anything whatever it finds it's just like give me some sugar yeah 
Nice. That's it, yeah. Yeah, uh, we'll put some pictures or at least some links to pictures in the show notes, sure. uh, as always. And check out the Wikipedia article <coughs> on Nutzia. Yeah. Do we have some fun? I don't have anything fun today. I have a quick um, link that I saw, I think, by the Plante Facebook group, um, just of some really beautiful pictures by Emily Blinko. So, again, we'll put the link to that. And she does um, these kind of uh, square Instagram style um pictures with arrangements of things and some of them are really beautiful with plants so like yeah. leaves all stacked together um yeah different flowers different leaves and it just really shows some beautiful um diversity yeah of flowers so um and often like uh, sorted by color and everything it's it's really beautiful yeah it's it's very pleasing to look at um yeah and there's some kind of quite a lot of like nature-based ones which i thought were very very yeah. beautiful yeah we put a link in the notes so you should absolutely have a look it's really beautiful and the other thing I found out about is, um, actually, this is from a, a colleague at work called Philip. So thanks, shout out to Philip. Um, it's a concept called wild crossing, which I had like not heard about before. Um, uh-huh. And the idea is that like when you think of a species, the thing that defines or delineates one species from another is the inability for them to cross and make fertile offspring. Like that's like the traditional kind of old school definition. Yeah. But what I didn't know is that actually there's this thing called like wild crossing, which has been used in breeding for, for many years, where they deliberately try to cross a completely unrelated species with another one to mix up the traits. And the example that can be used is mixing wheat with barley, which are not super similar. Yeah. Um, and then basically using that and trying to find some offspring which somehow work and getting some of the barley traits into the wheat or vice versa. And... I don't know, there's some information and we can put some links um, to a review, I think, um, in the show notes. But I was just completely amazed. I didn't really know this was even possible. Like, I, I didn't I mean, think it would sort work. Of the, like, the breeding history of wheat is, is that, like, it's like the crosses of two grasses that sh- then formed this, like, a pl- preliminary um, precursor. Um, and then you crossed in another wild grass into this But these thing are already. all Triticum species, right? Like this is yeah. all like very closely related yeah, stuff yeah. still. And, and this is like... Different species, but closely related species, yeah. Yeah, and this is now like crossing way out of the... Like yeah. there should be a sexual boundary here and somehow, and I'm not sure, like I haven't looked too much into it, Um, but obviously there's... It's not just like all the offspring are, are viable and it's not like happening very easily and well. Um, but I didn't know it was even possible at all. So I thought this was kind of cool that it could be done. It has been done. And it's one of the methods that people have used um, for years, like over 40 years to try and um, get desirable plates, uh, traits into plants, not yeah. from natural varieties of that species, but by already bringing in other species. And just like... For context, one of the problems with that the public has with genetically modified organisms is often this idea of like making Frankenstein plants where you take a bit from one and put it in the other. And I never knew that this was like a breeding technique that has already been used. Like this was yeah. and completely also, like, amazing. Been used for for I mean very like uh, actively and and knowingly used now for 50, 60 years. But for hundreds of and thousands of years in like the, the domestication of many species, this has been used that they crossed in other things because back then they didn't have a concept of species. And so they just tried. And so they also tried having these like very different things um, and bringing them together, just like with uh, some cereals. But I think there's also other species where that happens. And I, 
now this is something I only have very vague memories about, but I think oak trees are also very like happy to take up foreign DNA through through pollen um, and then incorporate that. So I, I should look that up a little bit more. Um, but I think this like species like um, DNA crossing species boundaries and and sort of integrating whole genomes or parts of genomes into new species is something that happens quite a lot actually um, and yeah and it makes sometimes makes you wonder like how is that um, super cool and natural and if you do that artificially and in a more controlled way and in a more sort of sophisticated way then it's it's a Frankenstein plant um, but uh, yeah I mean this is just uh, this this goes into like politics and eti- uh, ethics um, where it's sometimes a little bit more complicated and yeah. we don't deal with that on this podcast. No. A different podcast. No. But from a scientific point of view, you can find many transgenic methods in nature just happening. I mean, the um, the first um, gene vector, like the, that was or not the very first one, but one of the most uh, efficient ones, this uh, Agrobacterium tumefaciens, which is now used as a way to bring uh, DNA into a cell to, make, to uh, introduce transgenes. It's a, a natural isolate, and it's something like it, it makes these like big nodules on trees, and there, this bacterium integrates some of its own DNA into the tree um, to make it have this like cancerous outgrowth where the bacterium lives in, and yeah, this is something very natural, and it just took a, a few steps and some like smart people to turn that into a tool that we can use now. Yeah. I think that's it for today. Yeah, then um, to sum up, I do the little bit of the end bit. So if you liked us, uh, we're always happy to have your comments under this post on our website or wherever you find us on social media. We would really like to hear from you if you have any comments on the things we said, corrections, um, additions. um, Suggestions for what we can talk about. Yeah, if you have uh, a favorite plant, just let us know. You can reach us over at Twitter, we're at uh, Plants Pipettes. On Facebook and Instagram, we're Plants and Pipettes. And if you like this podcast, you can review us on iTunes. Um, that would help us a great lot to become a little bit more visible. And of course, the blog itself is plantsandpipettes.com. Where you find all the additional information, a comment section, and um, every week new articles uh, about interesting stuff. Um, and I quite like the collection that we have already by now. And when you're listening to this, we will have even more on the website. Uh, stuff that we even don't know about yet (laughs) the future um so yeah um until next time guys until next time i and uh, our opening music i have to give it credit because of yeah yeah, of course credit (laughs) it's uh, caravana by philip gross so until next time And next week on the podcast, we have a very special episode for you. We did an interview with the researchers working on pennycress, a very new exciting crop that might bridge the gap in the very cold winters of the Midwest in the United States. So tune in next week to learn more about this crop and its research.